Good morning. Let's take our Bibles and head to Job chapter 38. Job chapter 38 together this morning. It is a delight to have our missionary friends with us. Look forward to spending time with you intentionally today. There's a whole lot I want to say about the church family and some really neat things that are going on. Um, Pastor Mike and Steve have already addressed a number of those. Um, I have so much more to say, uh, but we'll uh, hold those comments for another time uh, when it's appropriate. Um, um, just look forward to having you at our house on Wednesday night. Our whole yard is in the shade, so uh, even though the sun is headed towards setting at that time, uh, you'll be underneath protective cover of shade, and there'll be more than enough H2O to go around, and we'll make sure that it's ice cold for you, and um, got the bounce houses all set up for the Maturity Matters group, <laughs> and uh, my wife and I also hired a face painter for the life in the middle group so the kids can come and enjoy some face painting um, and I'm sure we'll have the nine square and maybe some horseshoes and uh, a lot of wonderful food uh, this year it's just going to be great to do it again COVID's been a time out but that time's over uh, praise God and look forward to fellowshipping together with you. I want to encourage you too uh, with this. I've asked our staff and also the uh, folks of Great Lakes Bible Institute to begin to put together some material and how um, best to study the various genres of scripture. Many pastors call epistolary literature in the New Testament the literature of the church. And that's appropriate because from Acts chapter 2 all the way through the book of Revelation, that's information for the New Testament local church. And, and quite frankly, that's where we spend most of our time preaching and teaching as pastor teachers and teachers. And that's appropriate uh, because that is the, the message to the New Testament local church. But that information from Acts 2 to Revelation is, is not the whole of the Bible. Um, there are other genres of Scripture rather than epistolary literature or New Testament church history. And um, what does 2 Timothy 3 say? All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for... What's the first word? Teaching, doctrine. Not just New Testament literature. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for teaching. We don't have a resource here at our church that formally helps us understand how to properly interpret Old Testament church history. We don't have a resource in our church that helps us properly understand how to interpret Old Testament poetry. We don't have a resource here at our church that helps us properly understand how to interpret what we're studying here in Job, which is Old Testament wisdom literature. 
We do have a wonderful resource called Simply Blessed that helps us understand how to properly interpret uh, and hermeneutically understand New Testament literature. It's very, very difficult, if not impossible, to take that resource and apply it to all the other genres of Scripture. So we're commissioning them. We're going to work together to make sure that we provide for you um, resources to help you rightly divide the word of truth and properly understand the value and the spiritual nourishment and food for all genres of Scripture. And uh, we look forward to doing that for you, and we thank you for your patience with us as we develop that material. And uh, as you continue to use the material that we do have, that has been incredibly helpful uh, to all of us uh, in the new, um, excuse me, in the Simply Blessed material. Um, But anyways, um, I would say probably the, um, uh, the most difficult literature to to teach or to preach is probably wisdom literature and job is wisdom literature Um, i would probably say for me it takes me double the hours of sermon preparation for a sermon on wisdom literature than it does epistolary literature letters of the new testament Um, the letter the, the information we're going to put out for you on how to study and interpret and apply wisdom literature is going to show you that it's it's a different adventure to understand the mind of God when it comes to to wisdom literature I would say for me that because New Testament epistolary literature is the language really of the New Testament local church you preach most on that and so you get in a you get in a a good groove if you will right you know how to pick apart a paragraph, a paragraph in light of its chapter context, in light of its book context. You know how to get into the nitty-gritty, the granular aspects of, of language and, and so forth. And that's all necessary and it's good, but the more you do it, the better you get at it. So for me, when I stand in front of a mirror, if I had my exercise clothes on and I was flexing my spiritual muscle, I would tell you that my if, if my right bicep was rightly dividing the word of truth of New Testament literature, it would be huge, right? And that would be the one I'd love to flex the most, you know? Boys like to look in the mirror when they're young and flex. And that's good. That's good. Uh, Growing up, though, I would say that if, if my left bicep was understanding, being able to rightly divide the word of truth of history material or poetry or wisdom, that muscle would be a little bit smaller. And I would say a lot smaller. Still there, but not exercised as often as it should be. But again, that part of Scripture is good for teaching too, isn't it? It's profitable for teaching, for instruction, for correction, for healing. Uh, So we're going to do that, and you pray for us as we do that. Um, And I would encourage you, as you study the Word of God, that's really the number one way to grow in Christ's likeness is develop your own personal walk with God in your own daily Bible reading and in your own prayer time with the Lord. I would encourage you to keep a balance of your reading of Scripture. The tendency is to shy away from a lot of Old Testament literature or even prophetic literature because it is hard to understand. It's hard to apply. Um, 
But wrestle it out with God. We'll give you the resources to help you understand it so you can rightly apply it. Uh, so there's no part of the scriptures that you're fearful of studying because you know how to study it. Amen. Okay? To me, that's putting on the whole armor of God. And um, so we'll continue to, to flex all of our hermeneutical muscles together, uh, God willing, uh, going forward. But we're in Job chapter 38. Let's look to the Lord in a word of prayer this morning and ask his help on probably the most difficult portion of the book of Job to understand. Okay? Uh, so let's ask for his help at this time. Our Father in heaven, we love you. We thank you for the opportunity, as James chapter 1 and verse 25 says, to, to look into the perfect law of liberty. Not just being faithful here is help us, Lord, to be doers of the word that we hear in this hour. We need your wisdom to preach this wisdom literature. We need your help. These are literally this morning, O oh God, Yahweh of heaven, your words spoken directly to your servant Job. We preach any of the word of God, which is your word. We seek to be careful. This morning, most of all, as we speak, actually your direct address to this godly hurting man. We just need your help. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. In the early chapters of this book of wisdom, we find Job and his family loving the Lord loving each other together. Job has family, wealth, position in the community, and he's a man that fears God and is well-respected. Calamity hammers Job and everything he holds special and sacred in his life. God allows it to be taken away, his children, his home, his health, and his respect among men. The people of his own town seem to turn on him overnight. By the time we get to Job chapter 38, we are months into Job enduring the calamity he saw and experienced in a week. Those pressures have not been lifted. Those consequences have not been stilled. The people of his own town have turned on him. children of his own village scoff at him. He's diseased. That diseased has caused him, the text tells us, to smell. There was nothing about his personal appearance or his reality that was even remotely attractive. His three friends have spoken into his life. Each of his three friends takes similar approaches to Job's situation. They believe Job is in complete and total devastation because of some particular sin in his life that's left unconfessed. Job knows and admits he's a sinner, but he knows of no unconfessed sin in his life, and he defends himself and God with a vengeance to his friends. Left in a heap of a mass after his friends seek to address his situation, a fourth man speaks. He's young, a bit arrogant, but respectful. 
His name is Elihu. He's the foil of the story. He's the one that becomes the God-given segue to what we'll study this morning and next week. Elihu speaks of two things to Job. God's glory and the need for Job's faith to be refined. Elihu taught that Job's pride had become the factor that kept him from understanding his circumstance. Job had come from saying things like in the early days of his calamity, the Lord gives and and the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, he says to his wife, shall we not receive good at the hand of the Lord and, and not evil? All the way to the lamenting how much he misses the blessings of his glorious past in chapter 29 that we've already seen. To chapter 30, verses 24 to 31, admitting that his suffering is no longer endurable to even demanding that God give an explanation as to why he's allowing this agony and demonstrating such injustice to Job in chapter 31, verses 35 to 37. Job's struggling. And wouldn't we, as well, in the same circumstance? I mean, if I were Job, A similar calamity would have hit me, let's say, sometime last fall. At the front, I'm a bit stronger. I'm living off of what I know about the Word, and only the grace of God is carrying me, and I know this. The realities of my situation don't seem to get better. Everyone around me, including you folks, begins to speak, but not God. In this agony, I sit And I listen to counsel of well-intentioned friends with no comfort to my soul. About mid-January, I'm put in isolation in a nursing facility here in Lake County because I'm so diseased and infected. Everyone there is deathly afraid to step into my room for fear of getting infected and having to put up with my mental and my emotional state. One of you might slip past security in April or May to see me. That's if you still thought I was worth being with. And the moment you step into the room, I speak and say, God, where is he? Why is he doing this to me? You might want to leave the room at that point, but you decide to stay. You might be the Elihu and speak truth about the justice of God as I'm doubting his justice. You may tell me that God is reminding me that my faith needs to be refined and that he does love me. You might say this popular phrase known by many of you, no pain is too great to suffer if it has its sanctifying purpose in your life, pastor. And you would be right. Then you pray with me and slip out of the room and leave me to my agony and your words. I think we could all understand why Job has come to this point where he is. Yet he's not sinned with his mouth. As we know, Elihu's words to Job were similar to the ones you may have spoken to me at the nursing facility. And at the end of Elihu's speech to Job... I think it would be good for us to see 
what he had to say as he was departing from Job's presence. Look with me at chapter 37. Job chapter 37 and verse number 22. This is Elihu's speech at its conclusion. Out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. The Almighty, we cannot find him. He is exalted in power, and he will not do violence to justice and abundant righteousness. Therefore, men fear him. He does not regard any who are wise in their own heart. Verse 22 again, out of the north comes golden splendor. Around God is awesome majesty. I really believe what's happening here at the end of chapter 37 is that Elihu sees and hears a storm brewing to his north. And he knows God is arriving to speak. So as the storm nears, Elihu humbly slips from Job's presence and leaves him with God alone, and God does speak in chapter 38 and verse 1. Then the Lord answered Job out of this storm and said. This is only the second time this name for God has been mentioned in this wisdom literature. It's his most proper name, Yahweh. Lord, we can assume God announced himself with this name. I, Job, Yahweh. He might say, I am, Job. It's the same name that God told Moses to use when asked of the fearful enslaved Israelites from where he got his authority to lead them out of bondage in Egypt. And what did God say? Moses, tell them that I am sent you. The covenant-keeping, self-existent, eternal one of heaven now speaks with authority to his servant, Job. As Job hears the Lord coming from the north and the storm, and the storm is now upon him, he knows that it's the feet of God kicking up the dust of the whirlwind. He knows God that he always wanted to hear from him. For months he's been seeking to have audience with his creator. And it's not happened and God's been silent for upwards of a year. Now he's here. And he speaks. I think it's important for us to know that God uses the art of interrogative. He used these, the art of questioning to begin to challenge and instruct Job's heart. He says, Who is this that darkens counsel by words without knowledge? In verse number 2 of chapter 38. And then he says, Now gird up your loins like a man, Job, 
and I will ask you, and you instruct me. In other words, I'm going to give you a test, Job. Did you ever study for a test, only to go in to take the test and not know any of the answers, the questions on that test? Have you ever had that moment? He's like, where have I been all semester? Was I given the wrong stuff to study in preparation for this test? That's happened to me, right? That's a fearful time. So Yahweh shows up and says, I'm going to ask you knowledge, and Job, you tell me the answer. But I need to let you folks know that Yahweh isn't entering Job's presence as an angry God carrying a big stick. Ready to beat his subservient, his servant into subservience. This is, this is the authoritative, self-existent, promise-keeping, loving God of the universe. Who's finally going to be answering Job's plea for an audience with him, even though he knows Job's struggling and questioning God's justice. A lot of liberal theologians, when they address this text, because they don't believe in the sufficiency, the inerrancy of Scripture, they'll choose to label God as they wish, as a mean God, a God that can turn on his own children and, and hate on them. By the time we get to the end of this text, we're going to see that that's actually completely pagan. God lovingly approaches Job, but very clearly and sternly, but approaches him nonetheless. God speaks to Job twice in our text this morning. Job responds twice. The first time God responds to Job, it's chapter 38, verse 1, through chapter 40 and verse 5. God just gets to it. And let me tell you what he does in those verses. He presents himself as the God of nature. The God of nature. And then Job responds in the early parts of chapter 40, but then God speaks again in chapter 40, verse 6, through chapter 42 and verse 17, and he doesn't talk as the God of nature, but speaks of the nature of God. He's going to use the created order to bring Job to his spiritual senses. And then he's going to speak of himself. So as we go back to what Yahweh says as the God of nature, He asks Job in verses 4 through 7, Job, do you know history comprehensively? Verses 8 through 11 and verse 16, Job, do you know oceanography? Verse 8, or who enclosed the sea with doors when bursting forth it went out from the womb? He's speaking here of the sea as it is an easily controllable infant for himself. 
You ever stood by the sea in Florida when a hurricane is hours away? I remember watching my son play a baseball game in Jupiter, Florida, and a hurricane was a day away. And I remember walking the beach with him and my wife. And I'll tell you what, the closer I got to the beach, the water, the, the quickest I wanted, the quicker I wanted to move away. <laughs> God says the sea to him is an easily controllable infant straight out of the womb. Job, do you know oceanography? Job, do you know meteorology? Verses 12 to 15 of have you ever in your life commanded the morning and caused the dawn to know its place? that it might take hold of the ends of the earth and the wicked be shaken out of it. It is changed like clay under the seal and they stand forth like a garment. From the wicked their light is withheld and the uplifted arm is broken. God directs Job's attention by asking questions now of his created order above. Job, where is the dwelling place of light in verse 19? Where's the dwelling place of light? And darkness, by the way. Where is its place? Verses 22 to 24, Job What do you know about the snow and hail and the east wind? Verses 25 and 26. What do you know about thunder and rain? Who has cleft a channel for the flood or a way for the thunderbolt to bring rain on a land without people, on a desert, without a man in it. Job, can you comprehend not only the makeup of a storm, but where they happen to occur, even though there's no man there to observe the storm and the might and the power of it? Verse 28, Job, do you have knowledge to explain the dews of heaven? Verses 29 and 30, can you speak intelligently about how water turns to ice? About 31 to 33. Can you bind the chains of Pleiades or loose the cords of Orion? Can you lead forth a constellation in its season and guide the bear with her satellites? Many believe that's the Great Dipper. Do you know the ordinances of the heavens or fix their rule over the earth? Now, Job, why don't you tell me what the coordinates, the specific coordinates are of Orion? And I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna wait, Job, and I'm gonna want to listen to your answer. Verse 
Verses 34 to 38, God brings Job's attention back to the earth below. What causes rain, Job, again? Verse 34. Verse 35, can you send out lightning to the ends of the earth? Can you number the clouds? Verse, seven, verse 37. Or pour out bottles of water from heaven? Hey, Job, what causes mud that your kids used to love to play in? Verse 38. I'm going to sit quiet until you give me an answer. Verse 39. The Lord begins to ask Job questions of the animal kingdom. Can you hunt for a lion? Can you satisfy the hunger of a young lion? Verse 41, can, can you prepare the raven for its nourishment? Can you feed the baby ravens in their nest throughout the world, Job? About chapter 39, verses 1 to 4. Job, do you know how many mountain goats were born in Nepal yesterday? Do you know how many deer were born this past year throughout the world, Job? Do you understand the birthing process of a mountain goat? Do you know who holds that goat when it's born in safety? In the cleft of a mountain peak? What about those unpredictable animals, verses 5 through 8, Job? What about that donkey? Right? We all know donkeys to be those unpredictable creatures. Chapter 39 and verse 5, who sent out the wild donkey free? And who loosened the bonds of the swift donkey? To whom I gave the wilderness for a home and the salt land for his dwelling place. He scorns the tumult of the city. The shoutings of the driver he does not hear. He explores the mountains for his own pasture. Pretty, pretty independent soul, these donkeys, and search after a green thing all by themselves. Job, every animal that's unpredictable according to man is completely predictable to me. Verses 9 to 12. Did you know, Job, that the ox only bows to me and to no man? Verse 13. God brings some comic relief to his questioning of Job. How about that ostrich, Job? Did you know purp I purposely created that big bird to be kind of dumb? Verse 14 says, she abandons her eggs to the earth and warms them without dust, and she forgets that a foot may crush them or that a wild beast may trample on them. She treats her young with cruelty as if they were not hers. She remains unconcerned. Verse 17 actually says, but God has made her forget wisdom and has not given her a share of understanding. This is one big stupid bird. And Job, do you know I made her like that to prove to you that I'm still concerned about her eggs. 
I'm the one that will allow life to come forth as offspring. Even though she's dumb, I never am. Verses 19 to 25. How about that horse, Job? Did you make that muscular neck coated with that beautiful mane of hair? Did you give that horse fearlessness to run into the battle without armor, not caring for his own existence and his own life? Verses 26 to 30. What about that hawk, Job? Is it at your command that the eagle mounts up and leaves its nest? To beautifully soar in the blue sky for all to see in her majesty? Did you make their nest in the rocky ledges, Job, where they sit and peer below looking for their prey? Are you the one, Job, that provided that prey to be brought back in shredded bloody scraps to be dropped into the beaks of the young in that nest. And for all this, Job has no answer. He's just quiet. Chapter 40, verses 1 and 2. Then the Lord said to Job, Will the fault finder contend with the Almighty. Job, you're doubting my justice. You're, you're finding a flaw in this one attribute of mine. Not any other, but in this one. God's possessive of himself. He's jealous of himself. He's the self-existent God, self-defining God of eternity. He can be that way. So God can bring comfort to the heart of a doubting child of his enduring intense calamity by taking ownership and possess, being quite possessive as just one of his attributes and say, hey, listen, fault finder, just of my justice, are you still going to contend with the Almighty? Let him who repu reproves God answer it. And Job speaks first two times that Job answered the Lord and said behold I am insignificant what can I reply to you I'm going to put my hand on my mouth and I'm just going to shut up once I have spoken and I answer even twice and I will add nothing more I will add nothing more of all the questions God has asked of his creation, Job had no answer. He's been brought to silence, and now God moves forward. He's not done. Hang on with me here, folks. There's more work to be done in the refining of his servants, Job's faith. Well, God had spoken of nature thus far. He now speaks of his own person in chapter 40, verse 6, through chapter 42 and verse 17. You see, friends, it was the nature that God had created. It was God's created order that brought Job to silence. And now it will be the very nature of God that will bring the whole of his person to repentance and submission. 
And I find it very important theologically for this reason. Romans chapter 1, Psalm 19, the heavens do declare the glory of God and the ferment shows forth his handiwork. But there really truly isn't any self, anything that's salvifically powerful in just what God's created. And yet there's much to be learned there about God. Now God's going to speak of his person who actually had saved Job years ago. And when he speaks of his character and his nature and his person, that's where Job finally bows the knee in the midst of his calamity to find peace and rest. So God confronts Job in verses 6 through 9. It's the fourth time the name Yahweh is used in this book. It is here where God strongly but sincerely compels Job to consider his person as compared to his own. And God challenges Job as to his justice and Job's inability to fully grasp it. By asking him to compare his physical features to God's, first of all, in verses 9 and 10. What does he say? Or do you have an arm like God? And, and can you thunder with a voice like his? Adorn yourself with eminence and dignity and clothe yourself with honor and majesty. By asking him to compare his physical features, God's now got his attention even more. Because instead of looking around at his creator, Joe's looking up. And considering the person of God. He goes on in verse 11 to say, Do you, Job, have to deal with the sin and the problems in the world created by sin every day like I do? Job, are you going to deal with the wickedness and the pride of men like I do every day in verse 12? Job, is it you who decides what happens to the ungodly, and each one of these questions are in relationship to God's justice and appealing to Job's sense of finite justice. Look at the, main, look at the commands, really, of verses 10 to 14. Adorn yourself. Verse 11, pour out the overflowings of your anger. Verse 12, look on everyone who is proud. Verse 13, hide them in the dust together. Bind them in the hidden place, Job. Do all of these things. And then God's way of displaying his nature to Job, he does again through the created order by highlighting two beasts, the famous beasts of Job, Behemoth and Leviathan. Behemoth in the Hebrew language literally means super beast. A lot of people think this is the hippo. Now you would say the hippo is not that intimidating of a creature. Listen, I was in Africa and I went on a safari. And we were schooled by the safari leader before we went out on that truck because there were going to be certain times where we were allowed to get out of that truck for a little bit in Rome when they thought it was safe. There was a lot of qualifications about what to do or what not to do with animals on that safari. 
But the one they warned us most about was the hippo. They said, you do not want wrath of that beast. Looks so docile. Things way too fat to be fast. You know, what's that thing going to do to catch me? You know, this is stuff I was thinking. We come up on some water. You ain't getting out of the truck. They're out in the water. What does it matter? Don't get out of the truck. No man can contend with that beast. No man makes it out alive when face to face with a hippo. Super beast. This was a beast so strong, the text says that only God could approach him. Certainly Job would not to pretend to be God's equal and try to approach the hippo. If Job could not contend with the hippo, then he had no chance to contend with his creator Lord. And then there's the crocodile, Leviathan. Leviathan in the Hebrew just means sea serpent or water monster. What does he say in chapter 41 and verse 1? Hey, Job, you're going to take your rod and go fish for this puppy? Go ahead. See if it snaps your line. Can you snag him with a hook? Verse 2. Verse 3. Hey, Job, why don't you go find Leviathan? Why don't you leash him up and give him to your child as a gift? Can you slay him with a harpoon? Verse 7. There's no way Job could control this creature, yet at the same time he had come to the point where he felt he could tell his creator a thing or two about justice and equity. Verses 33 and verse 34. There's nothing like this sea monster in all the earth, made without fear. He looks at everything that is high. He is king over all the sons of pride. God goes on to mention the weapons that are totally useless against this creature, the sword, spear, the dart, the javelin, the arrow, and the sling stone. The creature laughs at all of them. All of those threats to him are like a piece of straw or a piece of rotten wood, verses 27 to 29. Verse 8, hey, guess, guess what, Job? Go lay your hand on this monster. And remember the battle, because you'll never do it again, God says. God's message then is clearly stated to Job in verses 10 and 11, or chapter 40, what is, 41, what does he say? No one is so fierce that he dares to arouse him, that's Leviathan, then look at the next question. Who then is he that can stand before me? Verse 11, who has given to me that I should repay him? I'm the great giver. No one's gifted me anything. What is under the whole heaven is mine. It's mine. There's no one like God. As to his person and nature, there's nothing to compare it to him. And his infinite excellence. So 
So the God of nature brings Job to silence, and the nature of God has brought Job to repentance now. And Job submits. In chapter 42, verses 1 through 6, his repentance is detailed. If you'll read it with me as we close. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things, and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Who is this that hides counsel without knowledge? Therefore I have declared that which I did not understand, things too wonderful for me, which I did not know. Hear now, and I will speak. I will ask you, and you instruct me. I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eye sees you. Therefore I retract, and I repent in dust and ashes. You know, folks, you know you're never really in full repentance until you're willing to just sit and be quiet before God. Let him talk. You see, for months, God knew Job wasn't quite ready to listen because he's still enduring the turmoil of the emotion of his calamity. So how patient and how merciful God is for all these months to still consider his servant righteous and godly, but not yet ready to sit and listen. There are three virtues to Job's repentance here I leave you with this morning. Number one, the admission of God's absolute sovereignty. Lord, I know that you know of all the 10 million things that just happened on earth in the last five seconds. And I don't know any of them. A submission to his absolute sovereignty. Number two, wisdom beyond himself. There's absolutely no way I will ever understand all of the difficulty that I'm enduring. But behind the scenes of heaven, Lord, I know you are infinite wisdom and there is a plan for me today and tomorrow and for the rest of my life. In the eyes of the window to the soul, Lord, I see you. My soul is open and bare to you. And I no longer will consider or question your justice as injustice. I see, I see you're just. I see you're just. Some theological conclusions for this morning are simply these. Folks, remember, God never promised life without pain. He only asks for trust as we wrestle ourselves to perseverance. Number two, God's might doesn't simply just make things right. God's not tone deaf to your circumstances. God's not coming in to just to beat you over the head because you're not responding in perfection to your calamity. His might just doesn't come in and club Job into submission. But his might in this text has a purpose. And that purpose is intentional. And it's personally intentional for Job, particular to his growth in godliness. God's might. Even in the midst of your calamity, 
is always with divine purpose. His strength is intentional. The message is truly that God loves to bring glory to himself by abasing the proud and giving grace and upholding the humble. That's very clear. That's repeated in the New Testament in 1 Peter 5, isn't it? God gives grace to the proud, or, or, or grace to the humble. And he dethrones pride. I think another theological implication or understanding from this text is simply this. Knowledge of God, not humiliation, elicits Job's repentance. Knowledge of God, not humiliation, elicits Job's repentance. And it's the very attributes of God demonstrated towards his created order, both animals and plants, clouds. As you read through this this morning, as you've been reading through it on your own, you have to see that the attributes of God are even ministering to his created order. And Job, if I'm ministering to that which I've created that's not human, how much more am I going to minister the same attributes of kindness and goodness and love and patience and compassion to you? I think the Lord Jesus would reference that in Matthew chapter 6. Take no thought for tomorrow. Don't worry about tomorrow, about whether what you're going to eat and what you're going to drink. And what does he say? I give the birds feathers to fly. I give the colors to the lilies and the green pastures. How much more am I going to take care of you? A little faith. God provides. God provides. And practically, as we wrap up this section, I think it's good for all of us to consider the silence of God up until Job chapter 38. And when he's silent, what do we have to learn? Who do we have to learn from? And how does God's grace compel us to continue to seek God in that silence? Number two, consider the patience of God as his grace grows you in your calamity. This has been months and it seems like Job's falling apart, but God doesn't see it that way. Job's faith is being refined. And then consider with me this morning the Lord Yahweh coming just at the right time in the storm to intentionally speak into Job's circumstance where he can come to the point of repentance and rest. Reminds me of Psalm 62.1 where the psalmist says, my soul finds rest in God alone. My salvation comes from him. He alone is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I'll never be shaken. Those are to me the words of Job 42.6. I see, Lord, I'm stable, no longer shaken. Can I encourage you with this? For those Pastor Mike prayed for at the beginning of the service, and those who could have stage four cancer with a week left to live, and you're in no pain right now, and you have no idea that you have it. 
could be any of us, right? God still can bring your soul to rest before or even if you don't ever get healed. We haven't preached on what God did with Job post-repentance yet. But Job found peace with God when he was still in the nursing home in isolation, in soul agony, and in utter devastation with no one else around interested in him. Kind of reminds me of 1 Peter 4.19. For those of us who are failing, and 1 Peter we know was written to a group of afflicted people, entrust yourself to a faithful creator while you continue to do good things. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we love you. We, we thank you for the opportunity to consider this wisdom literature and the presentation of your wisdom through your created order and then through your own nature. We thank you, Lord, for your patience and your grace and the development of Job that's experienced far more than any of us will ever experience in our lifetime. And yet you've given his life is a living testimony throughout history. It's a timeless example of what it means to struggle with integrity. Undefining rest in your person. Help each of us, Lord, that are enduring various degrees of calamity. It could be health. It could be the threshold of a broken home. be the lack of being able to obtain a job whatever degree of difficulty anyone in this auditorium is facing help us to all understand that you are the God of justice and you are completely aware you are completely sovereign and since you are over control of the 10 million things that happen in the world in the last 10 seconds certainly Lord you're in control of our circumstance. Help us to quietly find rest there as we seek to know your grace to persevere. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. And by the way, we went through Ecclesiastes, which was wisdom literature. There was one sentence in there that Solomon told us was a good thing for us to do once in a while when we couldn't figure out life. I think it kind of applies to this text. He says, go out and consider the sun. Not S-O-N, S-U-N. There was a lot that God had to teach Job through the created order. We went through that this morning. If you're struggling this morning, whether spiritually or physically, I'll tell you what, the best thing you could do this afternoon, it's sunny outside, go take a long, quiet walk and seek God. Enjoy his creation. Just like Pastor Mike prayed, what did he pray? Lord, help him to enjoy that ice cream. Help him enjoy that time in the pool. Help him enjoy a quiet walk on the beach, undistracted by human frailty. Let God speak. He desires to. All right? All right, thanks.